Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thank you so much for being with us. Lots to talk about, and we're going to start with the right to vote. We've talked about this many times before, but we're going to say it again. There are currently 400 bills pending and 28 already enacted in 17 different states seeking to impede the right of people of color to exercise their franchise. Now, voter suppression 2021 takes a whole lot of different forms, from curtailing early voting to one ridiculous proposal to criminalize giving water to people standing online to vote. What's interesting to me is that the rationale for most of these suppression bills has changed over time. They were originally proposed to guard against alleged voter fraud. As more and more people began to point out such fraud was minuscule, these suppressors changed tactic. It's now about the 74 odd million people who voted for Donald Trump and their paranoia about election integrity. All this is fiction born of the Republican fright on the right. That is, the fear they can't win elections without suppressing the vote of the opposition. The 2020 election is a case in point. It's why Political ran a ridiculous piece calling Joe Biden's speech on voter suppression demagogic. Republicans are scared to death that the chickens hatched during the four years of Donald Trump will marginalize their party in elections to come. It's hard to handicap those elections, but the GOP wants it both ways. They know their guy lost in 2020, and the only way to keep their base engaged is to hoist up straw dogs like there's massive fraud going on that only hurts that same base. Now, it would seem logical to people that if there was massive fraud, it would be a situation where both parties could be held accountable. But of course, right-wing state legislatures, majority Republican state legislatures, don't see it that way. For them, voter fraud is strictly a province of the Democrats. The AP, by the way, is reporting that the much-criticized audit in Arizona has found 200 incidents of potential fraud out of more than 3 million ballots cast in the 2020 election. Keep in mind, this audit was done by a company which some say had a vested interest in finding enough fraud to call Joe Biden's victory into question. Instead, what they got was a substantial bill state taxpayers are going to have to pay. Oh, and by the way, of the four cases where people have been criminally charged, that's four out of 200, criminally charged with vote fraud, two are Democrats, two are, guess who, Republicans. Anyhow, back to the president's speech. He used some strong language invoking the Civil War and Jim Crow to describe some states' efforts to disenfranchise their citizens. It's called using the bully pulpit. He never mentioned his predecessor by name, but he inferred that much of the spurious claims of election fraud were made by him or by his minions. Okay, that's a given. But what to do about all this? Biden called for action, but was vague about what action. One thing he didn't talk about was a push by some in the U.S. Senate and voting rights activists to get rid of the filibuster to pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Act. Right now, two Democratic senators, Manchin of West Virginia and Cinema of Arizona, stand in the way of ending this relic 
of those opposed to civil rights legislation because that essentially is where the filibuster was most often used back in the day. But Joe Biden, being a moderate politician all his life, can't bring himself to do what's needed to get one or both of these bills passed. Even the man who did more to get Biden elected than anyone else, South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, expects more from the president. That would be to play hardball with Senate Republicans and Democrats alike. I never really expected Joe Biden to twist arms on this, even though he's been, he had been in the Senate for 36 years and certainly knows how it operates and knows which buttons to push and which arms to twist. Yet, I tried isn't good enough. It just isn't. Voter suppressors depend on timidity from advocates of voting rights. That's why, for leadership on voting rights, we need to look no further than the 50 Democrats from the state of Texas, who left the state rather than allow Governor Greg Abbott's special legislative session to reach a quorum. That Texas legislation is aimed dead at black voters, many of whom live in Harris County, the state's most populous. Those Texas legislators met with Vice President Kamala Harris, the administration's lead on voting rights. Many progressives think state legislators across the country should follow the lead of the Texas Democrats. I'm one of them. I agree. Matching those courageous Texans who may face arrest when they go home is the heart of Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She was among nine people arrested for holding a voting rights protest at the Capitol. Yes, that's the same Capitol that hundreds of right-wing zealots breached on January 6th. Ironic that Congresswoman Beatty was led out of the building zip-tied. Her response to this arrest was defiant. And this is what we need when it comes to voting rights. This is what she said, quote, I stand in solidarity with black women and allies across the country in defense of our constitutional right to vote. She also invoked her late colleague, Congressman John Lewis, who talked about making good trouble. It may only be causing good trouble that the voting rights of people of color will be affirmed and protected. Words from a bully pulpit are nice. Direct action is better. Remember that Joe Biden got 92% of the black vote last year. That ought to be good for something. Coming up, uprisings in South Africa and Cuba. Time for some uncomfortable truths. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. Two nations, thousands of miles apart, are experiencing widespread protests, looting, and in one case, even deaths. Cuba is seeing its first widespread protests since the revolution at the end of the 1950s. So what's going on here? First, I should say, for my part, 
at the outset that I take Western media coverage of both nations with a grain of salt. That having been said, let's take South Africa first. And of course, it appears there that the protests are around the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma. He turned himself into police to begin serving a 15-month jail sentence for refusing to appear before a judicial inquiry looking into alleged corruption during his nine-year tenure. Now, when I say I don't always trust the media about this, I don't know whether Jacob Zuma was corrupt while he was president. I do know that it appears, at least if you read reports about South Africa, that Western media takes the corruption, alleged corruption of Jacob Zuma as a given. I have not seen five articles in the nine years that man ran the country where he was not accused of somehow being corrupt. Now, maybe he is, but you kind of get a fuzzy picture about exactly what he had been doing if you read Western media outlets. Now, since the protests began, there have been some allegations in some quarters that Zuma is trying to destabilize the South African government, and specifically of the man who beat him to the presidency in 2018, Cyril Ramaphosa. While you can question the extent to which Zuma is directing protest activities, he certainly endorsed their state event, and that is to free him. Although it looks like the worst of the violence is over, between 180 and 212 people have died during the uprising, depend on who you read. Just as bad, the violence has had the effect of slowing coronavirus vaccinations, where case numbers are rising. Remember, there is a South African variant of coronavirus. Now they call it the beta variant. Are there sides to be picked here, either the government or Zuma? You could say a lot of this could have been avoided had Zuma simply made that court appearance. And this situation may not be the only thing South Africans are protesting. Inequalities built into the nation's economy over the past quarter century since the end of apartheid have yet to be fully addressed. And I can't emphasize that enough. There are structural inequalities in South Africa. And I say this because my daughter spent time in South Africa and came back and told me about this sort of thing. There are these inequalities that right now, the governments, going back to Mandela, in fact, have not yet been able to fully address. The poor of South Africa are still just that, the poor of South Africa. And that, folks, is the real challenge for Cyril Ramaphosa. In Cuba, protesters are angry about a number of privations the government usually attributes to the United States embargo. This time around, that explanation isn't good enough for many of those in the streets. Then again, neither is the Western media explanation that the shortages of important provisions, a lack of employment, and a rise in COVID-19 infections shows that Cuba is a failed state. If you use those yardsticks, there are a lot of places on earth that would be considered failed states. It survived for a very long time now in spite of the embargo and at least one failed coup attempt. The problem is primarily economic in my view. Cuba's economy shrank by 11% in 2020, leading to widespread blackouts, empty store shelves, and widespread unemployment. To its credit, the current president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, has moved 
to address some of the economic issues facing the country. However, a large pro-government rally over the weekend seems to indicate that the government still wants to blame the bulk of the problems on the U.S. embargo, which President Joe Biden seems unwilling to loosen. For its part, the Cuban government needs to stop being heavy-handed in suppressing dissent. That is probably the most consistent criticism about the Cuban government, even without street protests. It is alleged that they sometimes will round up dissidents and incarcerate them. To be clear, there are a number of black Americans who identify with the Cuban Revolution. They cite the country's support of the liberation struggles in Africa, particularly in Angola, going all the way back to the mid-1970s. I do believe this. A combination of economic and political reforms, coupled with a gradual loosening of the embargo, would go a long way toward easing the suffering that produced these protests. And again, you look at South Africa, you look at Cuba. What do you have in terms of the protests? What are they, uh, where's the common point? What do they have in common? These are poor people, poor people who are protesting and saying enough, enough with unemployment, enough with inequality. And those common points should be, in my judgment, where you start looking at solutions, both in Cuba and in South Africa. After all, that is the point, isn't it? To ease the suffering of the poor. Both Cuba and South Africa need the poor of both countries to have hope for a better future. And finally, in this episode, you ever hear of a soul cap? We'll tell you all about it. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Now, I have to admit, I don't follow swimming very closely. However, a recent New York Times story caught my attention, in large measure because the sub-headline mentioned Leah Neal, an Olympic medalist and daughter to a good friend of mine, the poet, musician, and playwright, Rome Neal. That's when I read about Soul Cap. It's a swimming cap designed specifically for black hair. It's meant to accommodate thicker, curlier, hair textures, you know, black hair. The International Swimming Federation, known as FINA, initially nixed the sole cap designed in 2017 in Britain. They're the ones that pass on what's allowed in the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. Now, if you want to wear a sole cap while you're working out or under other circumstances, that's one thing, and there's nobody that can stop you from doing that. But this FINA Again, I didn't know anything about this, but this FINA can stop having certain implements used. And in this case, they ended up saying no to the sole cap for the Tokyo Olympics. Yet the sole cap made a bit of a comeback when FINA announced earlier this month that they're reconsidering the ban. That's due in large measure to the backlash to the original decision. Black women, black swimmers, began to speak out about that decision. 
It's not as though the sole cap gives black swimmers a competitive advantage. If anything, it might make things more difficult. Leah Neal, the second black swimmer to make a U.S. Olympic team, says even though she never used the sole cap, she thinks the controversy is good for the sport and for black swimmers who may choose to use one. It never dawned on me that a swimming cap that doesn't accommodate dreads or locks and the like would discourage black women in particular from taking up swimming in the first place. And we're not just talking about competitive swimming here. Several people quoted in the Times piece said black women get discouraged from even learning the fundamentals of swimming. And remember, if you know the fundamentals of swimming, you can save somebody's life. And people, black women, at times will not take up swimming because their hair gets damaged by chlorine in the water. Who knew? Something as simple as extra room in a swimming cap has an impact on inclusion. In other states, states like California, they've banned natural hair discrimination. And remember, this is not just limited to swimming. Some of you may remember that a ref in New Jersey got banned for making a young wrestler cut his dreadlocks or forfeit a match. He cut his dreadlocks, won the match, and helped his team to victory. These kinds of overt, in some cases subtle, racist acts need to be called out. And kudos to the people uh, who, first of all, invented Soul Cap, and secondly, people who use it and promote it. Times, in fact, may be changing. Maybe just not fast enough. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.